the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Before I introduce our guest for today, I uh, just want to mention that. Uh, Times are tough. Who knows what the future holds in terms of employment for the old boy? So, if uh, you know if you have the means and you and you're enjoying the show and you appreciate the content um, and feel so inclined, I do have a Patreon available. Um, that is www.patreon.com forward slash m u h h. Of course, that stands for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. But I'm very excited today because we've got another Texan lefty coming to the podcast. Uh, we've got the publisher and co-editor-in-chief of Protein Magazine, Mr. Stephen Monticelli. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be chatting with you. Hell yeah. Like I said, another. it's all, always awesome to meet another Texan who is also on the left. I think we're kind of a rare breed, <laughs> it well, seems. Uh, I, I've been pleased to, to find that since I've moved back, uh, I've found quite quite a few in Dallas quite quickly. So uh, I think that might be changing, or I'm, I'm hoping it'll be changing faster as, right. yeah. as things we, progress. I think we all are, right? <laughs> yes, yes. But it's great to be connected with another uh, yeah, lefty Texan, absolutely. Are you in a, well, I don't want to dox you or anything like that, but uh, if you feel comfortable, where are you in, are you in Dallas proper or? Uh, yeah, I'm in the Dallas area. I'm in Dallas proper. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and uh, came back here a few years, not a few years ago, about a year ago uh, to basically be closer to my family. Um, right on. Who are all still around here and uh, also be able to live in a place I was living in California before. Where the rent is, you know, a third or less, the, you know, so it's it's uh, in terms of being able to produce um, leftist media, it it goes a long way in terms of making the money, uh, yeah, making the money spread. Understandable. Um, so yeah, I, I actually I know DFW as a whole really well. I lived there for a couple of years from the end of two thousand nine through the end of twenty twelve. I lived in Uptown Dallas, but oh I, boy. I was actually a, I was a property manager for uh, residential rental properties, so I like know all of Collin County, all of Tarrant County. I even forget like I like anything from like Waxahachie, Mansfield, like out that direction, all oh, the yeah. way to like Princeton and Anna and uh, McKinney, out that direction, and shit, even to like Segoville and stuff. So. I am very familiar with that that area. All those all those ring a bell to me. But uh, I, you know what? I can't remember who followed who. But I think I think I just saw that you were another kind of leftist in in Texas, and followed you. But uh, I don't know. You might be you might remember better than I. I uh, I'm unsure as well. So <laughs> you know, I would say that I'm a relatively newcomer to Twitter. 
I went through a period of time, uh, maybe about two-ish years ago, a little more, when I was coming towards the end of working at a tech company uh, and and really uh, personally becoming very fed up with my relationship with social media. And so I I effectively uh, became a social media hermit and didn't have any social media presence whatsoever other than uh, those required for professional uh, professional yeah, needs. Like LinkedIn, yeah, 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 which I didn't really use beyond just it being a placeholder. And so, um, you know, moving past that, uh, my co-editor, Tyler, basically said, okay, you really need to get a Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, we, we don't really use paid media or paid ads uh, and we rely on, you know, effectively our organic reach to be able to build an audience. And so I, I decided against my own better mental health to, to jump <laughs> on board. And, you know, I, I, I effectively was was kind of lost. I was like, I haven't I've never even used this before. So he just uh, kind of pointed me towards a bunch of people to follow. And then once I got a hang of it, I started figuring out whose whose posts I like and uh and then yeah I think we ended up just becoming MUFOs. So there you go. Nice. Yeah. So I've I've actually had an account I think since two thousand eight. So I kind of studied um new media at the time as kind of what well like Web two point was referred to kind of in the two thousand seven, two thousand eight kind of window. Mm-hmm. But then like at that time it was I don't even think you know, there wasn't really shit posting. Like none of that had kind of been mm. figured out at that point. That all kind of evolved, I think, a little bit later. But I think right around the uh, right around 2016, somewhere somewhere in there, I got involved in shit posting, and uh, it's actually been it's been awesome. I I would say it's been one of the best uh, parts of of joining Twitter. Uh, it's a very cathartic sort of experience. As far as I recall, at least in my personal relationship with the internet, I my earliest memories of shit posting like uh, content would be from sort of the something awful forums or okay, pla- okay. like you know places like that pre pre social media, right. and then it seems like a lot of that yeah has carried over. And when I joined Twitter, uh, I was sort of it was almost like a nostalgia for something that I hadn't had access to for a while. And now I, I'm finding even my friends uh, on my very minimal use Facebook, which I basically just have a fake name and use <laughs> nice. as a as a way to look at local events. Um, I, I I see them shit posting on Facebook now, and so uh, it's it's a beautiful thing, you know. It's a beautiful thing. Believe it or not, I was a re- I think I was more active on Reddit forever. Um, I was a huge Game of Thrones Game of Thrones fans, and I got into the books, and like that was like one of the best before the TV show got super super popular. That subreddit was fucking awesome because there's like so many avenues for speculation and like all these you know bizarre prophecies. I don't know if you ever oh, delved into the books or anything, but that was like a r- amazing amazing community, and I think that's where I first kind of got exposed to shit posting. And it was funny too because like every little um, you know little subreddit has their own inside jokes. Oh, it's uh, it's it's just like a yeah. I mean uh, a thing that morphs to fit its community, but yet remains consistent across so many of these. It's it's phenomenal. So I actually kind of had a pretty good joke that uh, you know like I w- I was looking for for protein magazine. 
and I got you. I got you a magazine, and that's how I got experience exposed to it. Yeah, we've we've <laughs> we've gotten that. Uh, and, Have you and, seriously? Yeah, we've definitely gotten the the protein magazine, uh, and it's. <laughs> It's a bit of a an inside um, joke and a secret um, of the origin story in that um, one of our original founding members uh, kind of had this nascent joke idea uh, to make a magazine. The only thing that they wanted to do was they're like, I don't really know, but I just want it to be called Protein. Um, and then it and then it kind of got stuck in in my head and then it started morphing and then i was like wait a minute i know this other word and then it and then it became something else after we realized that oh not only is this a neat sounding word that no one seems to have used in the way that we want to use it but um or at least for publishing as a a title like that but um that it that has a meaning that we actually find to be meaningful and and identify with in terms of certain values and how we want to make the magazine, uh, but we have found that there there is a bizarro world protean um, publisher uh, out there that also has a Twitter account. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've surpassed them, but it's it's. I think it's like two guys named David uh, that run it. It's like David and David, so it's like the Pod Johns. <laughs> yeah, um, but but regardless, yes, protein magazine, <laughs> freaking protein magazine. We're here. We're here. Hell we're, yeah. Giving you really dense, flavorful content. Getting some gains for your mind. You know? Yeah, yeah. More gains for your mind. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, I, I guess just kind of introduce us. Give us an over overview of kind of what uh, you know what your goals are with Protean and kind of I guess maybe even the genesis of the sure. of the project project. But yeah. So uh, aside from the the Protean connection. <laughs> Uh, the genesis was effectively that um, myself uh, and a few others who all were sort of looking for a creative project, um, and I had met um, Tyler, the other co-editor, co-founder, um, through DSA in, in San Francisco. We nice. essentially kind of started chatting and realized, you know, we both wanted to get into a writing project and had writing that we either had had up our sleeve or intended to write, but, um, you know, sort of had been frustrated perhaps by the typical submission process. Uh, and, and we're also noticing that, you know, we, we had a shared interest in certain magazines and certain publications, but which we both agreed there were too few of, generally speaking. Um, and so it, it kind of just started from finding the right group of people together. And then the goal really was to create, you know, not really a platform for ourselves that was, you know, sort of incidental and, you know, ancillary to the real idea, which was to just create another platform specifically for leftist writers that, um, you know, would help cultivate new writers and would cultivate writing across a variety of genres. Uh, because we all agree that, um, you know, sort of leftist culture and and the pursuit of truth requires a number of different lenses. Um, and that, you know, you can express things through poetry and you can express things through fiction and art that you can't necessarily express through an essay and vice right. versa. So, um, and that, you know, that, that there are also people who have different interests and that we need different entry points for different types of people who have 
you know, different interests. Maybe people lean towards fiction or essays. And we want to be able to provide something, a little bit of something for everybody, but also, um, you know, another reason for people to look into other types of work that they may have not considered before. And, and we wanted to create with the print magazine specifically, you know, sort of thematic packages um, and, and something that's really high quality as well, because at the end of the day, the business model uh, is to go directly to the people that read us and say, um, we want to cut out all the middlemen and we want you to uh, directly basically fund the writers and the artists. Um, you know, we, we don't have ads, we don't take ad money and we're a nonprofit. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, we, we basically put, you know, every dollar that we get uh, beyond any of the money that goes into just hosting the website directly towards the production of this magazine and, and paying the people whose content goes in there. Um, and so, so it was not only to just create a new platform and another place for people on the left to be able to put their work. Uh, but also to, you know, try to create, you know, like a prefigurative space to create an, you know, create an alternative model. And we're not saying we're the first people to do this, but um, we're hoping that we can, by participating in this model, demonstrate its validity. Uh, because there are quite a few other, uh, other magazines out there that I think um, operate probably under a very similar model. And, and we respect them and they were certainly inspirations for us. Do you have like, as far as like a publication that you sort of, or maybe, maybe there's a handful yeah. perhaps that you yeah. sort of draw inspiration from in terms of content or whether it be content attitude, you know, maybe even Certainly. funding styles, et cetera. What, do, what are your sort of ins, inspirational sources or what do you, is there something you're trying to, maybe a niche that you feel is specifically on? Ooh, good unserved? question. So two two questions. First one, I know that um, several of us really appreciate the work that uh, the folks at the ba the Baffler have done for a long time, um, and I know we were reading them at the time. Um, Current Affairs, uh, in terms of maybe a more recent example, you know, sort of the in terms of their genesis and their origin story, similar. You know, started as a small group of people, crowdfunding. Um, and then they're very transparent in terms of, I think, what they do with their funding. And, you know, you know that their publisher makes like he pays himself 30K, uh, whereas you can look at some other ostensibly left outlets and, you know, I don't want to name names, but <laughs> yeah, it's, or not even <laughs> that, but oh, it's just different. You know, it's just different. And so um, uh, I think they are, are folks that um we, we appreciate, I mean, in terms of uh, fiction, like N plus one, they are some of, I think, uh, the best purveyors of, of sort of short fiction um, on the left that I, I, I personally enjoy. Um, I mean, but there's a bunch that are also contemporary that we also, um, we look to like folks like Commune are excellent. Um, I mean, I could go on, there's, there's quite a few, but yeah. uh, I would say those were some touchstones for us and then in terms of a niche maybe that we wanted to fit into or create, um, we wanted to lean a bit more into poetry and we wanted to also consistently, at least in the print edition, provide fiction um, simply because, um, you know, we, at least I have a viewpoint that a lot of fiction, um, you know, and a lot of art has the power to change people's minds and um, it's important that we 
do what we can to create space for explicitly leftist fiction, um, especially uh, sort of in the wake of the many decades sort of campaign of um, sort of depoliticizing certain MFA fields in literature um, and, and making it, you know, very, very deeply personal or literary writing, but writing that perhaps uh, is askews placing itself in a socio-political context um, or having a point or a moral. And so um, we want to, you know, create more of that. And we want to also um, bring in a lot of visual culture as well. And so um, I would say that's that's a lot of the stuff that informed the style of the magazine and its composition in terms of how we think about its content. And then in terms of um, maybe, you know, you could say our, our stance or our viewpoints. I mean, we are an eclectic group. We're, we're not, um, not a sectarian group on the left. Uh, we, I would say we've published folks that maybe even disagree with each other on certain things. Um, but I would say what we're trying to do is we, we want to also cover so as we are a literary and cultural magazine, we want to cover pop culture. We want to cover um, popular culture and, and things like television or music in addition to more explicitly political topics or more explicitly literary topics um, or theoretical, you know, philosophical topics. So, um, I mean, I know that's that, that can encompass a lot, but I feel like that's also implicit in the name that we chose um, because we want to right. also keep our, um, you know, sort of our, our arms open um, to, to following this project where it'll take us. And, you know, one of those things is having a new podcast hosted by, um, you know, one of our comrades, Mel. And so, you know, it's not print, it's not a, it's not literature, but we feel like it's relevant and it helps build the broader project. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say that where we go is a product of how many folks we can get excited about the project and interested in it and sort of become readers or contributors. And then, um, you know, as we can get new folks to join the board or, you know, just be involved, um, see where that takes us. But I'd say that's, that's kind of in a nutshell. Um, who we were inspired by and, you know, sort of what we're aiming to do. What about as aesthetically? Cause mm. I, I do have to, I mean, we should bring this up now. Cause I think, so your, your second volume of the magazine and, and pardon me if I'm using the wrong terminology, but I, I think you, you've got a strong, both a strong title. You've got a strong visual reference on the, on the cover, which is amazing, but I, I don't want to spoil any of that. Mm. I don't know if you want to, go yeah. down that rabbit hole right now. Sure. Maybe I'm so, jumping the gun there. I don't know. If <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I, I mean, I think we care a lot about um, the aesthetics in terms of how we package and, and produce our content. Um, and I think that's partially because we want people to, to really be engrossed in it and, and be present with it whenever they have a physical magazine. We want them to think, oh, wow, this is something I want to really sit down with and spend time with and keep. Uh, but also because, um, you know, th these things have meaning and they can be impactful and can communicate um, things that may be hard to communicate in language um, or they can just create new connections in people's minds. And so specifically this this aesthetic for um, 
this issue, Anti-Sisyphus, is a pretty stark, um, at least in terms of the cover, it's a pretty stark departure from her first, which was a bit more bright and a bit more colorful. Um, yet, at the end of the day, the content um, and, and the theme of that issue, Pattern Machines, was perhaps no less um, critical or, um, how do I want to put it, having an edge, a sharp edge to it. Right. And, and something that we aim for this magazine to, and this issue to have, is, is an edge to it that um, can be unsettling to a certain extent, but also enticing and, and something that it leads you through an experience, but hopefully kicks you out towards a feeling of doing good and doing something something right. Because um, what what the image on the front of the cover, you know, someone sort of effectively a skeleton on its phone uh, crawling out of a pit of techno garbage <laughs> is it, it's a it's a yeah it's a metaphor uh, for a state of mind or a state of existence um, and and it requires um, one to look at it and understand it in order to move past it so so I think we're, we're, we're trying to yeah, like we're not afraid to go to the dark places. And, you know, the person that did the cover for us, Ellie Valley, certainly is is not afraid to do that either in his regular cartoon work. Um, but but at the think at the if you look at the back cover, it's quite more colorful and it and it and it has a, a certain playfulness that we don't ever want to lose. Um, in the process of making serious content, um, because something that is sort of packaged in this idea, in the in the idea of this anti-Sisyphus going against the Sisyphusian or <laughs> Sisyphean uh, tasks that we that we have to deal with in daily life. Um, but it's it's also about you know, sort of that ludic attitude, imbuing a playfulness into life even if what you're dealing with is horrendous or terrible. Um, and, and I think that's almost required because, because otherwise, you know, how else are we going to make, um, make ourselves sort of feel better or get through? I mean, we have, we have a lot of strategies and laughter is one of them and laughing at absurdity is one of them. And our next issue will be, I think, about one of the other essential strategies um, uh, for, for sort of revolutionary activity to, to keep one afloat, um, that being love. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that um, what you'll also see is that from each issue, the thematic sort of packaging will change. Um, you know, the next issue, which will basically be all about revolutionary love, I'm sure you can imagine will have uh, a different, a pretty, pretty different cover than um, than what we have on this issue, and and that's intentional for us to be able to, um, you know, draw in folks because uh, what we also are very aware of is that if we can get these on more shelves, hopefully folks will be able to look at the cover and say, wow, that doesn't look like the other things. Yeah. Uh, so so that's ultimately no matter what the specifics of the design are that's that's a goal of ours is to to make sure that we stand out um because there's there's a lot of stuff that's out there you know there's a lot of content that's out there um and and at least something that uh publishers or people in the book or magazine industry always tell me is that you know the way something looks is one of the number one reasons something that someone might be interested in it or interested in buying it yeah, 
Absolutely, and I, I don't mean to s- steal the thunder from the the first cover, which I think is great, and I really like the uh, the titling that you've gone with. Um, is this? I mean, obviously, I feel like the second the anti Sisyphus is definitely kind of it's recalling Deleuze. Was that an inspiration for for pattern machines as well? Just out of curiosity. Certainly, um, it wasn't as directly referenced um you know we leaned on a few other uh sort of french um thinkers of that generation um baudrillard in in particular um for at least for my essay but uh it was it was something that um we didn't we didn't directly reference it in the intro but these are folks that all of us have read or have read folks that are around them and so um you know, we're going to probably continue to reference them throughout throughout the the run of this magazine, and and they're explicitly referenced, uh, and we're explicitly a ref, uh, an inspiration for anti Sisyphus. Um, you know, and in that um, their exploration of sort of a, the Spinozist line of thinking of a body is what a body can do. Um, that in particular was kind of a really inspiring line for. Um, trying to overcome maybe the block that that Camus came to whenever he was imagining Sisyphus pushing this rock over and over and over again. Uh, it, it was a bit depressing, you know. It, it never seemed like he could liberate himself um, or or get liberated with the help of anybody else. And uh, as I learned more about Camus, I always kind of thought to myself, maybe that was because you know he was literally a sick man his his whole life, suffering from tuberculosis. Um, and and every day was probably reminded of his own uh, inability to sort of take control of his own body and his own life. Um, and, you know, that's a defunct illness now. But something that we did not obviously anticipate is sort of the theme of sickness and disease or oh, right. um, illness <laughs> to to be so relevant right now. Um, that's certainly something we didn't anticipate, but uh, as we got the magazine from the printer, we were already sheltered in place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I definitely, so Baudrillard, definitely someone that I absolutely adore, have for a long, long time. Um, so I, I've actually been, th- this has been something I've been wanting to write for a long, long time, but... I just have so much reading to do as I actually want to take a look at Lacan and Baudrillard and maybe even Deleuze and, and Guattari's and, and applying sort of their work to shitposting because I do like this kind of mashup between high and low culture and I think especially through shitposting and I think which I think is like I think maybe that spirit is if maybe I'm assuming some, you know, a little bit, but I think that maybe is kind of what you're going towards with, with Protean a bit as well. Um, hmm. I think, uh, yeah, I, I feel for us, um, a big inspiration is also the situationists. The situation, okay. Which, whom I also love, yes. The situationists, I think, were excellent shit posters. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, and, and explicit ones, and you know, they you can draw back some of their influence to Dada and, right. and the Surrealist movements, um, and, and the qualities there. Uh, 
which, you know, I, I've been meaning to write a piece about that as well around um, how, and I think others have written about this, about the sort of the Dada-esque surrealist qualities in a lot of modern memes. Um, and I think it's a powerful tool. I think it's a very, uh, it's a very powerful tool that is sort of, uh, you know, thematically exemplified by a sort of jester-like character. I don't want to say the other J word. We're not going to go there. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you know, a uh, sort of mocking, um, sardonic attitude. Certainly we, we aren't afraid of, of using that. And I think that's, it's something that, um, yeah, it, it's certainly a direction that we, we are, we, we like to incorporate, but we're not, um, we're not necessarily going for, for humor, for right. humor's sake, you know? I think other folks do that very well yeah. and and fit into that niche um, quite quite pleasantly. But um, certainly like the the levity and the idea of, um, yeah, like bringing in references from all over the place and the perfect term low culture or low theory right. um, being being something that is is certainly an inspiration for us. Uh, and so, yeah, like playfulness, I think it really comes back to it. It's like, you know, we, we, we can fight for something, but we, we still have to not be too serious and, and have a sense of levity about the process um, because it's not going to be easy. What a, so I'm sort of ignorant in this space. Is there, does anyone else cover, because I do have a, kind of a bourgeois interest in, um, trying to think like one of my i do like the avant-garde kind of aesthetic whether it be fashion or contemporary art etc um i will definitely cop to being a fan of uh like damien hurst are you familiar with his his work at all i think he's like uh, kind of like a maximalist hmm. um, he's kind of in that jeff coons kind of milieu but his stuff is i don't know he's kind of a bit reviled by art, the kind of art critic world, but I think his stuff is some of his stuff is incredible. I, uh, I, as I'm looking at some of his pieces, yeah, I've, I've seen it in sort of like a art history context. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of it um, myself. I certainly appreciate avant-garde art. Um, you know, I, I think that we try to draw a line. Um, which can be a fuzzy line, and it's exemplified by something that we published online somewhat early in our career, which was a piece called Art for Art's Sake, um, about you know Jackson Pollock being a specific example and that style yeah. of how uh, there were l quite literally intelligence agencies creating markets for uh, and and people who are connected to deeply these operations sort of creating curriculums around um, this idea of apoliticized art. Um, and so I, I think I, I draw from it and I appreciate it, but I think my my attitude by uh, my attitude about it is partially it's it's going to be, best demonstrated by an anecdote of when I walked into the Broad Museum for the first time and there was a docent right by a Jeff Koons piece and I was like, oh, cool. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'll listen in. I'll, yeah. I'll learn a little bit about Jeff Koons. 
and she was just shitting on the guy. It yeah. was it was hysterical in the sense that I didn't and, and some stuff I didn't know and that he made all his money in investment capital and uh, pays other people to make his. Oh, well, art. I didn't know. I didn't know that. He did. He pays other people to make his I think art. Hearst and then, does that as well. And then she went on to describe how the founder of the museum with the name is a venture capital guy or, or you know some some form of hedge fund or finance guy. And they're buddies, and that's part of the reason why his art is in the museum. Ah, uh, and so, and so, you know, that's to me it, it connects to you know the broader conversation around the political 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 economy of art, right. especially art auctions, and how um, I think people who are f- more informed on this than me, uh, a lot of them uh, have critically suggested that. Some of it is just straight up money laundering, or it's a vehicle for money laundering, um, and for vehicle for for moving money around by uh, creating a market of these assets that are really high value um, and and allow for people to park their money in, in various different ways. And so I'm like, hmm, you know, because at the end of the day, the value of art is subjective, and it's sort of a, you know, there's the hilarious anecdotes of fraudulent copy artists making basically perfect indistinguishable replicas of a famous piece them getting sold at an auction uh being a price through the roof and then it later being revealed and then there's a there's a amazing chinese avant-gardist i forget their name but they do this as well they 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 make an exact copy but then they destroy one of them (laughs) <laughs> oh shit! And they never reveal which oh, one they destroy. <laughs> oh, that's they great. like yes, yes. So, so what it's you know it's really interesting, particularly in um, in an era of digitized media where uh, you know we make a digital PDF of a magazine and then it's effectively infinitely reproducible. So value gets wacky, right? Uh, at least in the supply and demand capitalist economics textbook textbook context so so yeah like i mean kind of just curving back to where you originally said i mean i love uh, i i always want to be looking for avant-garde inspirations but um you know i'd say my personal just take on the role of an artist in in the world is uh is, is that they have a certain responsibility, I suppose. Um, and you can make art for art's sake as well. I, you know, right. it's just like a personal, you know, you don't have, everything you have to make doesn't have to be uh, judged by the productivity police. But um, at the same time, you know, there's, there's questions that arise around yeah. just, you know, who gets the funding for right. making what art and how do we value it all and yada, right. yada, yada. And I guess for us, our goal is just, you know, like allow people to have some, enough money to just make that art. Because I also think that uh, you may identify this with with this as well, but I personally have a compulsion to do something creative. Yes. And I certainly oh, know a lot of people who share that. Yeah. Um, and I also know that a lot of folks who, who have that compulsion aren't, um, I mean, maybe they would say it might be nice to be super rich from this, but uh, they will do it anyway. Right. And, and so, you know, my viewpoint is let's, you know, dignity, <laughs> have dignity, have what you need, live a, a decent life and, and be able to make your art. And that's great. Um, and, and that's what I would hope for for most people. 
just uh, from a from a general perspective because i think yeah like uh some of my my favorite artists have uh always have personally come from um yeah just the whatever you want to call it avant-garde or just the boundary pushing part of the art world at any given moment in time but um this is a question that i have for you to turn it back sure i rarely get asked questions so (laughs) when you think (laughs) when you think about sort of uh these distinctions like like avant-garde art or or genres um within the art world now when we live in the midst of this sort of recombinatory carnival of of content that's out there um i mean what do you make of that i mean because it it to me at least it it's like you can go online and find any kind of music or any kind of art yeah. being made by almost anyone right at, and and, and it, they could be even making it contemporary now but it could look like art or music or sound like music from 200 300 years ago or whatever so i mean i, I mean how do you you deal with that because you know as someone who i have to pitch what we do and 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 sometimes have to categorize things um it, i struggle with it personally yeah. oh it's it's tough you know I, honestly i haven't really thought about this issue all that in depth but just in this conversation i'm starting to think okay the first thing that's popping into my head is art is like a like the commodity fetish um, par excellent par excellence to it a certain extent because it is this object that is like oh you know what I mean like there's something metaphysical almost imbued into our at least the way that we treat art whether it be avant-garde or historical or whatever the case right like there's something transcendent about art that we're sort of or that's the narrative right that we're given so it's a it's a tricky thing to navigate because it's this double-edged sword of like i'm always drawn to like the very niche like taking a a genre or a style or something to its ultimate like it's the nth degree and uh so for example i can like draw an example from music with with someone like are you familiar with mf doom at all oh yeah my favorite rapper so like to me he takes the rap genre and its conventions and all of that to like it's er like he really strips down everything to its like bare bones components and there's something just fucking genius about that but like how much of that is coming from this sort of you know what i mean looking at from a materialist point of view you know what are we imbued like what is it about that you know what i mean is there a consumptive is there a commodity fetishistic element to appreciation of that like what what is that about you know what i mean i i think that's where the market comes for it but i I think when we're speaking about music something that i hope to write about and publish more about um is that it it has seemingly the quality of being immaterial but i mean you know to get into the physics of it it makes something happen with matter and it makes your body feel something right. and and good art in effect does that across time and space you know it you can look at something and it, it, it creates something in you and so i mean i feel like that's a universal relatively universal experience that makes art powerful 
Oh, but yeah, but then when you get into the fetishization of it and and the creation of markets around it, uh, to me, it just becomes absurd, frankly. To me, it becomes extremely, extremely absurd, um, particularly when when it, you know, it, it could be made analogous to diamonds how people tell themselves yeah. stories around right. or they're rather they are told stories exactly exactly around the value of these things uh, and they end up just becoming a store uh, and by store i mean a store of value for capital right you know a place where you place value and you park it and you convince you know a whole mess of people that um yeah, you know, a, a diamond that came from the ground is now more valuable than it's identical made in a lab. Um, and, and if you took the two and you destroyed one, you don't know the difference. Uh, but for whatever reason, um, and, it, you know, I think we can we can get down to the reasons if we really wanted to go there. You know, De Beers tells people these stories right. <laughs> and it's it's. Um, it's it's lovely, you know, but it's also uh, illustrative of the power of um, stories, which is inherent in art and all forms of propaganda, which, you know, as a publisher, I would be the first person to say that, yeah, we make that <laughs> we make yeah. propaganda right. because uh, something that I would say is a key distinction um, that we try to make between uh, our, our sort of style or our attitude and and that which we despise is we're transparent about our viewpoint and um you know we're we're, i'm a personal believer that there is no such thing as an unbiased reporter of information or an unbiased producer because at the end of the day all humans share the same fundamental blind spots um and and the you know the best that i think that i can do is to try and and admit them and then constantly revise them uh, but but you know if if we're going around and trying to say this is just the truth uh, as it as it stands, um, you know I, I think that that gets into the the dangerous territory of like the scientification of you know to to use a butchered word of certain social sciences or you know philosophy or the the creation of these idealized. Um, I don't know, but this this is this is where I, I am about to contradict myself. Like the whole, whole idea of like oh the inhuman, uh, but some of some of the philosophers that I've just been allowing myself to read and writers allowing myself to read in quarantine um, <laughs> for the sake of shaking up my own mindsets certainly delve into the the inhuman, um, which you know accelerationists uh, like Deleuze and Guattari um, you know certainly get into and. And have spawned a whole um, a whole array of, of folks, which um, we're certainly going to be. I'm going to be writing and finishing up a, an essay, kind of delving into accelerationist, uh, accelerationist, uh, contemporary accelerationist aesthetics in um, some pop culture, um, and and they always delve into the inhuman uh, as this unknowable. Uh, or, you know, sort of horror-like, horror-inducing figure, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with, like, Ligotti or um, the folks that... A tad bit with Ligotti. Uh, yeah, I'm not super familiar with them either, but, um, you know, sort of that dark side of accelerationism. 
Um, but what I what I'm hoping to to show is that at least in some of these more contemporary um, examples, there's there's opportunity for um, some some light some light in that um, and 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 it not delving or resolving in an irresolvable pessimism. Um, which I just, I don't know. I, I first, I personally have a hard time being attracted to, uh, for, from a philosophical standpoint. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that, that, that's just a tangent. I, I have nothing else there. I don't know. I mean, that's, I, I'm enjoying that actually. That's like the best part I feel because there's so much there. Um, I mean, just a, a couple of things to go back to somebody like, uh, like Hearst, whom I mentioned something that he's been doing fairly recently that is just blowing my mind is these they're like these very um not aestheticized but uh like antiseptic like uh these cabinets these huge cabinets and they've got they're filled with nothing but um like surgery and like scalpels and different surgery implements and that's the art piece is just these like perfectly ordered and structured cabinets of that are like antiseptic and it's so i don't know it's just fucking incredible it's it's genius to me right and it's kind of tapping into that baudrillardian kind of thing but it's like how do you as as a leftist too and like that whole dual-edged sword of like you you talked about the power of narrative which is undeniable right whether it be you know whichever side is using narrative i think you have to recognize the power that essentially everything to some degree is some kind of a narrative right at the same time on the on the other edge of that knife is that sort of commodity fetish and like desire to own something or there's like a sublime like there's a satisfaction there's a fulfillment of desire in in owning something so that's like a uh, what's the word like a pathology almost like I think that commodity fetish, fetishization, which obviously I am I will definitely cop to being, to being someone who is who is very susceptible to something like oh this cool thing yes I I desire that that's gonna who who isn't right yeah so I think that's that's something that's really interesting to me is, and I've been obsessed with this for a couple of years now is like this relationship between our desire and capitalism and communism and like literally what does desire look like in a post-capitalist world where they're you know what i mean you're sort of eliminating consumption for consumption's sake and what does that mean for art what does that mean for the avant-garde you know what i mean because i think you know even myself growing up i wanted to be a filmmaker and ultimately, what the desire, it wasn't fil filmmaking is like the stand-in, it's the object uh, for, for attention, for adoration, for like recognition. Maybe that's even the baseline, like the desire for recognition of from the other. Hmm. So, so I know that's yeah, a lot. The, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot there. And I, I think that uh, the thing that really stuck out to me was that that's a, a question that I grapple with as well. What is uh, what does production and desire and demand and the the distinction between need and want um, look like within a post capitalist society? 
And in my previous career, I uh, worked at a tech company, a very big one. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And I ended up after uh, basically having to switch jobs uh, within the company on a, on a team that was using big data to effectively figure out uh, you know, strategies to sell additional ads to uh, our customers based on what they were already using, which was like a, it's like a meta, uh, meta demand generation for a product that's entire job is demand generation. And uh, so, so what I think we have now is um, we have a production and demand system that is mediated by advertising primarily and advertising's role. Uh, you can look at back at this historically, there's a, sort of a pivot in the content of advertising around the f sort of rise of Freudian psychotherapy right. and, and the rise of psychoanalysis uh, to its sort of zenith of influence. And prior to that, um, advertising was primarily bland and just sort of like, uh, this is information about the product. Yeah, it's like there's uh, instrumental, there's an instrumental yes. element to advertising versus like this narrative or like metaphysical weird yes. fetishization element. Yes, so, so um, you know, there are a number of historical examples of how advertising was used to create problems effectively um, that prior no one really thought about. Um, and some of these, you know, could be viewed as social advancements, others uh, not so much. And the two that come into question are one sort of like deodorant and breath freshener uh, were things that they created yeah, this idea of right? uh, halitosis and ha what have you. Uh, and then it also ended up becoming a class distinction. Um, and there are other things where it's like, you know, if you smell good versus you smell bad, the boiling rag smell in the movie Parasite, for example, um, you know, that oh, being yeah. a, a, an amazing uh, just narrative plot device for the conveyance of that, the creation of these distinctions. Right. And then, um, I mean, there's, there's also the Freedom Sticks uh, campaign, which... Uh, if you're unfamiliar Torches of with freedom, that. like the Edward, Edward Bernays. Is that yeah, what yeah, for? exactly. Yeah, which was an explicit uh, campaign to promote smoking amongst women. Um, and so they used the convenience of tying it to the suffragettes to effectively uh, create demand Marketing, for this yeah. product. Yeah, so it's 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 phenomenal and um you know what i wrote about a bit about this in uh the essay that i did for the first issue of protean where you know we're sort of moving from demand generation to um intent generation and the distinction between that being in advertising what they tried to do in like big data advertising is uh identify this intent so you may have some hidden intent to purchase a vacuum and then if you display that intent via a search or what have you, then we can say, ah, you know, we're going to funnel all this stuff at you until you buy a, a vacuum. Uh, but you can understand that you could go further and say, hmm, maybe you don't need a vacuum, but we want to create the intent that you need this thing or that you want this thing. Um, and so you can imagine 
how if if stuff like that has kind of worked with with very uh, simplistic tools, that it could become very very powerful with hyper personalized propaganda that is tailored to your tastes and proclivities. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like if we're gonna get to a world where we produce things uh, without this, we, we, we need to figure out a way to get past this mediation and get more into a personal, like, I don't know, like how, how can I directly get what I need without that, that, me, that weird mediation and weird influence? But how do you also provide people access to information that isn't just totally overwhelming? Um, because there's, there's, you know, the reality that you can't just expect people to walk into uh, a library or an Amazon store or just whatever the equivalent is and understand what they need if, if their choices are just phenomenally overwhelming. You right. know, you need to have some way to guide people. And so, you know, I'm not saying I know what that looks like, uh, but we can also imagine... Yeah. Um, it's you a problem. Like, like you're identifying a problem, I think for sure yes. that I hadn't really and, and, considered too. And automation, you know, there are folks like um, the folks that wrote "Inventing the Future," which are you could say left accelerationists of a contemporary uh, flavor. They they talk a lot about how you know yeah we we shouldn't look at technology uh, like luddites. We should look right. at, at it like well how how can we liberate um, this productive power. Uh, and, and allow for people to benefit from it directly. And I don't know if you're familiar with um, Cybersyn, which was this oh, yeah. project in Chile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, stuff like that. I'm, I am um, not a techno optimist by any means, but I, I, I think that it's foolish to, to not conceive of socialism with like technology being a major uh, a major sort of driver or means and driver, or yeah, like a, a way to, to make it work because, um, you know, like whenever you're able to use this technology, um, in a way that is, uh, a bit more transparent and, and less, um, persuasive, hopefully people can, can use it to do good things. And you, know, you can see that in a lot of like organizing technology that has allowed for, a lot of massive mobilization of volunteers and door knocking and stuff like that. That's awesome. But um, then you can also see how really persuasive technology like, um, you know, like Twitter <laughs> can get you to spend a bunch of time in a different way. Right. Are you, um, are you someone who's read uh, Franco Berardi? I have, Ifo? I have not, but I'm, I'm definitely familiar. I, I would, uh, I would say he's, he's someone who, um, writes really interestingly and poetically and eloquently about um, some of these really interesting issues, like accelerationist technological issues um, from, a, I would say like, a, I don't know, he's, he can be a bit pessimistic and, and assume that we're, it's already too late and yeah, the best that right. we can do is resist. Right. But um, he identifies a lot of really interesting problems and, you know, projects outward, uh, you know, what we need to, you know, be wary of as we move forward, because the best that we can do is try to understand the risks um, as things continue to unfold, uh, because I don't know how much of, you know, this stuff can be put back in the box. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's it's actually funny because this was reminiscent of 
what the uh, like the space rock like the asteroid mining discourse that was going on i think it was like last week or the last couple of weeks and like how that plays into that the kind of notion of like the fully automated luxury gay space communism right which i think is something i don't know there's kind of a weird sometimes asceticism on the left that like certain people think it's like you have there can't be any um i don't know but there, there's some kind of like like a barracks communism kind of vibe that people ascribe to which i don't fit like I, that's you know what i mean there's a limit to what you can do without some kind of libidinal energy imbued within your movement um so mm-hmm. i think it's it's uh it's kind of like that knife's edge being on in terms of you know fully automated luxury space communism would be i mean why shouldn't we want the ability but like how much of that desire is imbued with that notion of like commodity fetishization which i think is something that we definitely like something that needs to be broken like we're generating a society that's you know geared around around use value rather yeah. than just consumption i don't know how do, that's, how do we <laughs> that's such a that's yeah that's that's a really interesting contradiction we published um an article that in this latest issue, it's one of the last ones. Uh, it's called "Beneath." Okay, I want to. I don't want to butcher the title, <laughs> so I'm just gonna pull it right here. "Beneath the cluttered homes, the beach." It's a reference to a situationist uh, slogan. "Beneath the street, the beach," and uh, he he touches on this idea that we have so much stuff already, right. um, and so. You know, kind of implicit in this idea of moving towards use value is we, we should start looking around at all the stuff that exists and try to use it, um, you know, but that does cut across other people's desires, like aesthetic desires and certain certain desires. But um, I mean, ultimately, these choices uh, in vision are are kind of constrained by whether we have hopes for an economy of abundance or an economy of scarcity, a continuation of an economy of scarcity. And, you know, I think implicit in uh, this, the, the sort of somewhat more serious undergirdings of the fully automated luxury gay space communism is that idea of, you know, um, trying to shift towards an abundance economy, um, which really only makes sense if we can kind of get beyond the constraints of this planet or advanced science to continue to use what we have more efficiently like we have been able to uh, thus far. But it also requires a reckoning with like, yeah, like, okay, well, we're already producing more than we need. So let's, let's maybe figure out how to better allocate before we go crazy and just start producing things out the wazoo. Uh, because yeah, we still have huge uh, environmental, you know, sort of ecological problems to, to resolve um, in terms of how to how to close the loop in production and, and waste. And and those are really technical problems, but they're also problems that uh, they're technical problems that have to get linked up to a social machine right. that uses the technology to social ends. Um, you know, just because we have the capacity to make all this stuff, you know, it's like... Uh, I don't know. 
if we nationalize Amazon, can we make fully automated luxury space-based capitalism? I'm not sure. I feel like it's going to take more than that. Right. Yeah, because I think how capitalism ties into this so much, and one thing I've said before is that whenever people say that capitalism is in sync with you or greed is like human nature i i think that's incorrect what they're really saying is capitalism is the most capitalism is the most effective system at manipulating our existing structure of desire hmm hmm that may be true. Which it's I very, think is it's very good at it to the to to the extreme of creating a system of addiction. Exactly in in many regards. And yeah, yes. so we're going down this sort of metonymic chain of like object and object, or whether it be object or identity or like something like there's always this multiplying effect and it has to continually generate that that new thing that you want or that new little wrinkle to something that existing because it's I'm thinking about this because I'm very much guilty of of this when it comes to fashion um, one of my favorite designers is is Rick Owens and it's kind of like this gothy streetwear sort of vibe um, and so it's like there's always some new little wrinkle that is being added and it's like oh that oh that's there's something sublime in that <laughs> you know what I mean when you see that yeah. object and you're like oh it's, I want that. It's, it's like, uh, gosh, Mark Fisher has written about this and folks around him have written about this, how like uh, coming out of the 90s, like late 80s, 90s, um, the the hope of, oh my gosh, all these new things, all these new sort of niche scenes, all of these amazing things to explore that are really exciting. This explosion um, has has become just it's been folded into the machine now. Like something that previously seemed liberatory has now been folded neatly into the machine. And now, yeah, like you're gonna get even more of those ads on Instagram for exactly that aesthetic over time. Uh, And I mean, it comes down to, I think, you know, it's like all this stuff is extremely alienating and we're continuing down that chain of further and further alienation down the path of, you know, alienating yourself from your environment through AR and then alienating even further through VR and, you know, that deeper and deeper chain. I mean, AR isn't necessarily an evil technology and neither is VR, uh, you know, but but if we continue down this chain of, you know, just purely using them um, for consumption or, or for alienating, you know, alienating reasons, then that's what we're just going to get. You know, yeah. we're going to we're going to end up trapped in the VR system, so to speak, of our own choice. But I, I something that comes down to me as well uh, when I'm thinking about like how a lot of these current systems operate, they're running up against so many of the edges of their edges. Like we're we're seeing the contradictions in so many of the things that are going on right now. Like so many of the systems that are in place right now, not just because of COVID, but I mean because of of real limitations like. Um, you know, with the, a lot of these technology companies, uh, there's no more time for them to mine. You know, like a lot of them are predicated on how much time they can get you to spend. Uh, and then there's there's an upper bound. There is an upper bound, and we've pretty much already reached that upper bound in terms of how much screen time people can have. Uh, so, so you have to imagine that if, um, 
if they're going to continue that chain, that logical chain, there there has to be something that they're cracking, they're seeking to crack open beyond uh, the monopolization of your time. Right. And I don't know what that is, but um, it, it seems like it's probably not good. Uh, and and personally, I think, uh, you know, um, I it's one of the biggest challenges of our time right now because we're like steeped in this information environment that um, is is really uh, not in our control uh, at all. Um, and I mean, I feel like people like you and myself are like trying to make our own things and, and break into it. Um, but it's 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 big. It's really big, uh, and doesn't seem like it's slowing down. Unfortunately, it'll be yeah. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I don't want to be fairly. I don't know. I'm I'm somewhat thinking that you know, depending on how this COVID situation sorts itself out, we could be looking at. Like, I don't think any of the outcomes are necessarily going to be that great. I'm pretty pessimistic about that. So I'm like thinking I could see something like universal basic income becoming a thing out of necessity moving forward. And I'm it will be interesting because I like think this is definitely a rupture in that pathway. And I don't know how that's going to necessarily break moving forward. Although I don't I'm not optimistic about the way that that goes but i think it could sort of be the end of this or at least severely dampen the strength or the the acceleration of this kind of treadmill of desire and uh commodity fetishization simply because people are going to be out of work you know i mean this whole consumer situation mm-hmm. economy and consumptive society is going to could very well collapse you know what i mean it's there's definitely the potential for it's that to occur and there to be a reshuffling of the deck, so it's certainly stripping things down to you know the the essentials, the word we keep hearing all <laughs> yeah. the time, and that's driving some people bonkers because their personal identity was tied up with this idea that they are a highly compensated member of this society and economy, and therefore they are an important or essential person, but. In reality, yeah, the stuff we actually need is uh, stuff that that class of people look down upon in terms of the work that is done. And so, yeah, I mean, it's not only going to hurt uh, consumption, but it's going to shed shed away some of maybe the false premises and people's assumptions around what really matters. Um, you know, that's maybe a sliver of hope there. Right. In that uh, we we can also redirect uh, redirect some resources, hopefully, and, and attention. And I mean, it's it's illustrating some contradictions. Um, like we're seeing layoffs in media, but yet people are consuming probably more media during this period of time than they have ever before. Um, so it's it's just yeah. It's Hopefully, if we keep pointing to certain things, people will pay attention to them and become aware of them because they're glaring right now and it's a great opportunity. Um, but yeah, it, it requires concerted effort and like a lot of people, you know, pointing to it because cable news is still really powerful and influential uh, as far as I can understand based on the results of some recent happenings and how many of 
the people who voted for certain people <laughs> watch cable news. And so it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and, and it's going to require like a whole apparatus, like a very, you know, large distributed apparatus uh, to, to counter that stuff. It's, and it, it's, it's, I think it's even more important now, like we're trying to double down on our work now, um, partially because, you know, we're all stuck at home, but also because um, this is the opportunity to, to be saying things that are important um, and, and it matters. The stakes are really high and, they, and they're going to continue to be high for quite some time, it seems like. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do my best to, to grit my teeth and, and uh, to reference the meme and I'll say, oh shit, here we go again. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting. Like, what is uh, what good is conspicuous consumption when you're sheltered in place? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, I think probably what we will see an increase in consumption in is uh, the things that make people feel comfortable yeah. and safe, and also you know. also Gucci face masks or Louis Vuitton <laughs> surgical masks. Yeah, man, stylish. You gotta you gotta flex gotta somehow, look, right? <laughs> you gotta flex on the IG somehow for sure. I mean, how else are people gonna know? No, but I mean, you know, the real flex. Let's be honest, David Geffen. Come on, <laughs> the the quarantine yacht. Real, 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 real cool, real chill. Uh, very, posts. very powerful flex there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, real, real, real chill. I I empathize for all of the people who are having to decide between sending their staff home or quarantining with their staff it's probably tough times for them it's still though i think that uh you know that sisyphian sisyphian uh situation it's i've seen it as sisyphian or sisyphusian you know (laughs) it it pick your pick your i don't think pick your choice this i don't know if a lot of leftists would agree with me but i don't think that that is like I don't think the wealthy are exempt from a certain like they're not exempt from their lack they're from being a lacking being too you know so they can there's almost like this um like the the act of talking about your quarantine yacht is almost like a psychoana- psychoanalytically is like it's the reverse it's almost like you're so dissatisfied that you have to project this you know what i mean like that's that's what i love about psychoanalysis in general is it's always just this like very interesting contradiction of like what something what someone's messaging outwardly versus like what is actually happening at their kind of base level of the, at yeah, the unconscious I, you know what i mean yeah i i it's it, it it is something that they are, yeah, you're right. You know, they're human too. Um, I think obviously the reaction to it is probably like, uh, man, you must be suffering. You know, it must be really hard for you in these times. But like, yeah, that's, you're right. You know, I don't know if that's coming from me as I'm psychoanalyzing myself. I don't know if that's a productive response. Yeah. I Maybe I'd be like, ah, oh, man, Dave, I, I, I empathize with you. Let's do everything that we can. <laughs> to to resolve this crisis so i'll open my coffers if you open yours let's get to let's get to funding people and getting them their ppe 
But maybe he'd like that. I don't know. I'm trying to experiment with pull tactics a little more than pushing <laughs> because I because I think during these times people are scared and nervous. Um, and even if they materially might be secure, psychologically they may yeah, not be, exactly. which I feel like is is your point. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, even myself, I mean, you know, I'm I'm still working. I'm working from home. I'm not under threat of like losing anything, but I because I don't have much to lose. I guess luckily you might say, but at the same time, it's like I'm incredibly privileged as well to not be, you know, sleeping on the street or I don't know. This, this shit is weird. Um, I'm not coping with it all of that great. Like I, I wish I was dealing with it a lot better, but it's kind of like now that I'm just working, but there's no release valve socially, uh, you know, on the weekends or something to like kind of like look forward to it's weird it's almost worse than at least before i you know what i mean there was some ability to like oh i can go out with friends and and do something on the weekend instead of like now oh no i'm just gonna i'm gonna stay home and read uh you know Felix yeah Bittari i feel that or something like that we're we're uh, already living in the human zoo, yeah. you know, basically. And, and now we've just ratcheted that up to putting all the zoo animals in their isolation chambers. And if you look at what happens in zoos, that doesn't usually go well. All the animals go nuts. They don't they don't cope. And uh, I mean, remarkably, humans have coped well, considering how densely packed together we have become. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, this isn't normal. This is really messed up. Uh, people probably are having a hard time coping um, and you know it looks different for everybody I mean gosh especially I, I feel for the people who have to go you know out there into the damn trenches every day and then they have to come home and they yeah. still don't get any sort of release valve right. uh, I mean you know there's only the hikikomori are <laughs> well adapted for this environment yeah. and and it's it's finally their time to shine it's very surreal to go to the grocery store now. It still kind of blows my mind. I don't know. There's there's just a weird vibe everywhere. Yeah. It's it's not a good vibe. The vibes are shit, bro. <laughs> the vibes are absolutely fucked. But, uh, you know, that's why we're steaming ahead. And uh, we, we think that the next issue of the magazine <laughs> is going to be even more important because... Uh, you know, we gotta find ways to to love ourselves and love each other in these absolutely bonkers ass times. Uh, and and I think it's it's uh, it's something that um, you know, if you look to examples of people who are revolutionaries who are in really fucked situations, uh, a lot of them were you know able to keep keep some light and hope, and a lot of that oftentimes comes through expressions of love. Um, and it's harder to do because, you know, you can't, I can't hug my parents, you know, that sucks. My dad's immunocompromised. So even yeah, if I so like, fine. like go and see them, you know, it's just, it's, it's messed up. Um, and you know, it's like, I don't know when I'm going to be able to see my new nephew and I don't know when I'm going to be able to do all this stuff, but, uh, you know, it just gets me to thinking, I guess we have to figure out new ways to do that. Um, and, and ways to try and make up for that, uh, because the, the, all, the only other alternative is to, you know, become a hikikomori and, and renounce the world. Uh, and 
you know, you know, if you want to become a hermit, that's fine. That's fine. That's a personal choice. But it seems like we're being pushed into that right now. And even the introverts uh, who who thought they were strong introverts may be reconsidering. Oh, yeah. I'm an extreme introvert, but this is fucking me. <laughs> like I said, it's without having something to do on the weekend. Um, my brother, for example, just came and helped me for like a day to move with his like huge truck. And it was just like so good to have like another person to talk to aside and like see besides just my roommate and I it was like uh, it was like a treat it was like oh (laughs) you know what I mean that's I I empathize with that I mean I definitely have definitely found myself uh getting into really random extended conversations with people from like eight feet away (laughs) if we're both like waiting for something uh Uh, it definitely goes on longer than it normally would and yeah we're we're for Protean, we might start doing some like live Twitch chat things. There's some folks that uh, we follow, like great podcasts. I don't know if you've heard of them, Horror Vanguard. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, friends of ours, and uh, nice. they've been doing like um, horror movie nights and stuff on Twitch. And something that I've been personally enjoying from my home is uh, there's some local DJs that do great like house music on Fridays, and they'll do like a Twitch stream, and then they'll like. Uh, broadcast other people's videos of them dancing alone in their apartments. Nice. So, like, there's there's little ways there's little ways that we can try and uh, adapt. But um, yeah, I it, it's caused me to reflect a lot on how I communicate with people because I also feel very privileged and lucky to um, for the foreseeable future uh, not be worried about getting thrown out on the street. Right. Um, but all the same. You know, like, uh, still, I, I need to, I need to not treat and act uh, like I normally would to other people, even if they're like my good friends. You know, because uh, there, there's still some difficult things that we need to talk about, um, like, like, just I don't, you know, Joe Biden, but. Uh, <laughs> And we're not going to talk, I don't want to talk about him here, but, uh, you know, some people I've had conversations with, I've realized I've already put my foot in my mouth um, because, yeah, we're on razor's edge uh, and and um, I, I can't be flippant in, in a way that I might normally want to be, even if that's my main coping mechanism. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got to find something new. Ugh. Well, this is uh, this has been a pleasure, man. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, we're at like an hour twenty on the recording. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, or is there is there an opportunity for me to maybe do a little plug for for some people? No, I think we. I'm I'm pretty pleased with wh- where we went. Um, I think it's it seems like we've been on kind of the same wavelength in terms of both reading the stuff we're reading and and thinking about a lot. So. I don't know. I, I think we had a good conversation, good stopping point, good opportunity for you to go ahead, drop your plugs and, and wrap things up. Yeah. Well, um, I will do that. So, you know, <laughs> um, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, this Anytime, was a real man. pleasure. And, um, you know, we I, it's always just good to chat with someone who's like-minded. And so I'll just use the other opportunity to say, you know, we've got our most recent issue out, uh, issue two of Protean Magazine. Which is slick. It's beautiful. I'm going to definitely put your website in the show notes. But, yeah, the, just to, <clears throat> Appreciate that. to emphasize how badass this looks, the art, and, uh, the title, 
Chef Kiss. We've got <laughs> we've got some people that I'm really stoked about. Uh, we're really honored to to have right for us. Um, I don't know if familiar familiar with uh, working people pod. Oh, yeah. Max oh, yeah. Alvarez. Absolutely. I've had him on the show. So. <laughs> Yeah, he wrote for us, um, which was an amazing personal essay. Uh, Lyda Gold, who is of current affairs fame, um, she wrote an awesome fiction piece for us. Uh, Tongo Eisen Martin, he's an amazing poet, wrote a lovely essay for us. Um, Very sort of, it's like an incantation. It's somewhere in between poetry and, you know, analysis, and it's, it's just very powerful. Um, and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and we're just really excited about the reception. Um, we're hoping to make more good stuff. And so, yeah, if you like it, please check out the website. Support us. So we have a Patreon as well. Uh, you can find it on our website or just Google it. And, um, yeah, I, I really had a great time. It was a pleasure. And I'll see you uh, in the shit posts. Hell, yeah. Uh, one quick, like, logistic question. So you're putting out two issues a year, correct? So yes, right now um, our aim is to put out two a year in print, and uh, we publish something new, at least one piece every week online. Those are totally free, Um, and yeah, it's available in PDF as well if you just want to read it digitally. Uh, Yes, and so yeah, we're we're hoping to to keep plugging along, and um, we'll be making announcements around you know like funding and. People will be featuring in the next issue and the theme and all that stuff uh, over the next month, few months. Um, and, it, you know, hopefully we'll start to be able to go outside more <laughs> yeah. between now no and the time you pub- we publish. But in the event that we're all still inside, um, we hope to give you some more good reading. <laughs> um, so. So, yeah, that's that's it. And um, yeah, uh, this was this was fun. And, you know, um, definitely big fan, big fan of the show and, and your interests. And uh, if you ever end up wanting to write something, uh, our pitch pitches are open. So just let me know. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I was actually thinking about this the other day and I was like, man, it would be kind of cool. Um, it's funny that I've become more almost more or it's become to where I'm enjoying doing episode thumbnails more so than the podcast almost so i was thinking it'd be really funny or cool to have like an actual printout of some of the episode thumbnails that i've done because i don't know i i love making memes i love mixing up i mean it's the same thing with posting it's just like you're just taking language you're taking symbols and just kind of jumbling up creating a new pattern putting a twist on a pattern I don't know. Something about that is just really fun for me. I I love that. That's why I like to shit post, Mick, mashing up those high and low culture things. I don't know. There's something like I don't know. There's some kind of jouissance there that's that's inexplicable. We'll, we'll follow follow that. And uh, you know, I saw a great tweet. Light of Gold tweeted, um, which was, you know, if you ever have a project in your mind that you've been maybe thinking, oh, that's too vain or embarrassing or whatever, or a waste of my time. You know, no one's watching right now. (laughs) You know, the the productivity police are not watching, so go ahead and just do it. And so if it gives you joy, that's that's what I would say. You know, why the heck not? It's probably gonna give someone else joy as well. But isn't uh, Deleuze is the philosopher of joy as well, right? Am am I making that up? (sighs) I'm pretty sure he is. 
He's he he's definitely about uh, the jouissance and the seeking of intensities. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I find it inspiring and, and uplifting, and it, it certainly was you know part of the reason we referenced it for this for this issue is uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, dizzying and you know dense toolkit that they've provided, but I think it's uh, an interesting one and, uh, and and one that they you know say take it. As you will, you know, whatever works, make it useful. You know, there's there's uh, that beautiful sort of piecemeal approach that they have, or rather the, the approach of it being, a, you know, a set of connections and as opposed to a system, which uh, I think makes it not only wonderful and, and a wild trip in reading, but uh, pretty, pretty nice and robust as well. Um, Anti-fragile, perhaps. <laughs> You'll have to keep your eyes out because uh, so right now I'm... I just did the first installment last week. Is uh, I'm taking a look at Felix Watari's um, Machinic Unconscious series of essays uh, with a couple of uh, MUFOs and uh, including Taylor Atkins, who actually translated the piece nice. into English from French. And another, actually, um, he's studying to be an analyst. So it's really cool to get, you have Taylor who kind of has this more academic geared focus and then an actual analyst who is also Mm -hmm. into theory and they're both incredibly smart, uh, thorough, thoughtful people and are really enjoyable to listen to. So you might have to check that out. Certainly, that sounds really interesting. I have not uh, delved personally as deep into Guattari's like standalone writings, so I think that would be really helpful for it's me. It's a good companion to A Thousand Plateaus. Um, there's a lot of overlap in terms of content and the and stuff like that. So it's a good kind of like workbook for A Thousand Plateaus. But I just nice. I would definitely like check that episode out. I'll have to send you even like I'm super happy with the way that the the thumbnail for that one turned out. I took uh, like the cover of Super Mario Brothers three and I made it because uh, the episode it's going to be Super Guattario Brothers. Nice. And so I took like the cover of Super Mario Brothers three and I like put Guattari's face on Mario and uh, did like a mock up of it and I'm really happy with the way that that came out. So we're going to be going through chapter by chapter of that work and then I think. Beyond that, we'll probably be exploring some of his uh, his solo writings. So it definitely, I think, uh, if you have an interest in them at all in DNG, I think you'd find some value in it. I I definitely definitely will. Um, this is something that this is just for your personal uh, personal enjoyment. If you don't know about this guy, I think you might find it fascinating. I met him here in in Dallas. And uh, I'm, I'm in the works of planning uh, a sort of a collaboration with him for our fourth issue, which will be psychedelic in nature. Oh, nice. And we'll have, have like an AR function that he's going to do for us where you'll be able to basically use Instagram to like hover over the cover or a big image or something in the magazine oh, shit, itself. That sounds amazing. And, Marty, I love it. and then it'll turn it, you know, so it it's like psychedelic imagery or something that's like not psychedelic. And then you turn on Instagram and it's like, bloop, and opens up and in a way that I think will be, um, not sort of gimmicky and, and elegant. Um, and we'll, we'll be complimentary, but 
what I'm referencing is he has this project uh, known as Taylor F in Cleveland, which is hilarious. You should check it out. It has a he has an Instagram, and it basically is this like a or it's a VR representation of him uh, that he he's basically created an avatar that's a musical artist. And then it has like its own life and he creates all these crazy trippy music videos for this guy. And then he like killed himself online and like made this whole stunt and like people thought he was dead. <laughs> and then, and then, and then he brought the character back from the dead by announcing that he, he's not dead and his management company is like resurrecting him. Um, and so <laughs> the management company resurrected the character and uh, and then he has all these. So it, it he and he's very into new media. He works a lot with like this new media collaborative here, and we we're talking a lot about you know Mark Fisher and Baudrillard and a lot of. So he's into that theory nice. as well. And so he's he's fucking with representation and simulation um, and the idea of like identity and what what does it mean in this totally simulated world and digital identity and its relationship to him as the person um, and then this creation of this entity that it's like a commodity that is a zombie it's like has it's like has its life of its own so sort of the simulacra of of taylor um it's just a trip it's really it's really fun stuff so um that won't be coming out this year unfortunately but uh we're i'm personally really yeah. excited for sounds for the content yeah, that sounds right up my of home. that for sure. Yeah, if you if you've ever read Acid Communism by Mark Fisher, it'll be in that sort of vein of exploration uh, nice. of, of our interest of psychedelic socialism, if you will. Hell yeah! Right on, man. All right, well, I guess I'll hit stop here. Uh, no, you can go. You here, let, me, uh, let me close out because um, I do want to first just once again thanks again to Stephen Monticelli, publisher, co-editor in chief of Protean Magazine, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, definitely check out the stuff. I'm going to post a link to everything in the show notes, but also want to remind those of you who are interested and willing that we do have a Patreon page and uh, we do accept money. Uh, it's www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. You can follow the podcast Twitter feed at UnconsciousHH. And you can also follow us on Instagram at UnconsciousHH. But once again, this will be Machinic Unconscious Hour, Unconscious Happy Hour, rather, with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. Now you can stop recording. (laughs) Including the ultimate form of security, which is unconscious.
one in the watch.